Let's pray together. Lord, I pray you'd rescue us from our um, self-deception. Use your word um, and the power of your spirit. And use even me. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, last time I was here, and um, we started looking at the beginning of Acts, or Acts Luke chapter 18. And uh, now we're in kind of the second chunk of Luke Luke 18. Uh, We'll do one more uh, next week, and we'll start transitioning into some other things. So uh, this week, you'll see uh, that our passage is also a parable, uh, our last one through eight. Verses 1 to 8 was also a parable. And uh, Jesus loved telling parables. Parables were like story. story um, they're kind of like stories that he uses as a teaching tool. Uh, I kind of think of uh, parables like these little backdoor bombs. And what Jesus would do is that while he was telling the story, he would sneak this little backdoor bomb in the crevice of your soul while you weren't paying attention because you were so enthralled with the story. And then he'd finish the story, tell you what it meant, and then the bomb goes off. It's disruptive. And uh, the, the parable about the persistent widow that we looked at last time I was with you and the parable we're going to look at today uh, are both this kind of disruptive. And what Jesus is really after, he's trying to give us a deeper sense of the understanding of the kingdom. Uh, and today, uh, our uh, parable is about pride and humility. So let's read it together. He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The word of the Lord. So you see the two characters in here, don't you? Uh, You see the Pharisee and you see the tax collector. And if you've been around church very much, you know that preachers love to beat up on the Pharisees. And the reason that preachers like to beat up on the Pharisees is because Jesus liked to beat up on the Pharisees. But Jesus' audience, the one that he's talking to here, has a very different view of the Pharisees than we do. The view that they have is that they view the Pharisees as this very respectable class of people. Are kind of like physicians or professors in our context. Because, you know, when you're with a professor or you're with a, a, a medical doctor and you call them doctor, there's this instant air of respect. Well, the Pharisees, they had that kind of respect in their society. And here is why. It wasn't because of their educational acumen. It was more for their moral fortitude. Because they were able to keep the Old Testament law with precision, their, their wills were unbreakable. They were the kind of folks whose discipline makes you sick. You know those kind of people? The people who actually do work out three days a week? Um, the, the kind of people who actually do keep their New Year's resolutions? Well, this was the Pharisees. They always obtained the goals that they set out to achieve, and they didn't slip up. And so now they're left with this glowing reputation in which they walk around their context and absorb from those around them. 
So they were truly insiders. They were the power brokers of their context. But not so the tax collector. The tax collector was a complete outsider in their context. Now, when you think of a tax collector, if you're not familiar with the way Jesus' people um, would have viewed tax collectors, you think of an IRS agent, the Internal Revenue Service, that they're just the ones who ensure that we pay our tax bill. And if we don't pay our tax bill, then they begin to garnish our wages. Because the IRS says they're going to get what's theirs. And very few of us, in fact, I've never met a person who was like, you know what, when I, when I grow up, I'd really like to be an IRS agent. Uh, so if you are one tonight, I'd love to talk to you about how you got into your profession. <laughs> Maybe you just like the benefits. Um, I don't know. So, but in Jesus' day, the tax collectors were nothing like IRS agents. Because IRS, IRS agents, they had to keep, they were, IRS agents are highly regulated in order to promote justice. But tax collectors in Jesus' context were crooks. See, here's how it worked. The Romans ruled over the Jews, the Jews who lived in modern-day uh, in modern day Israel and Palestine. And the Romans ruling over them doesn't mean that they were forced into slavery, but their rule was nonetheless oppressive. So you see, the Romans would conquer any kind of people, and then they let those people keep their cultures for the most, keep their culture for the most part, with the one caveat that they would pay the Romans taxes. They really were in it for the money. And they had a genius system in which they collected this, these taxes because they knew if they sent a Roman to modern-day Israel or Palestine and said, hey, you collect these taxes, they knew that it wouldn't be as smooth of a process. But if they sent someone who was on the inside, another Jew, to go collect the taxes, things would go better for them. And the Jews might actually like the Romans more because they didn't have to face that kind of conflict. And so they would send out, people would send out bids, fellow Jews would send out bids in order to have a certain region in which they would collect taxes. You might say, why would anybody want to do that? I mean, to be an IRS agent for one thing, but to be considered a traitor of your own people, why would anyone do this? Well, it's a really good question. And the answer is that the Romans incentivized the tax collectors and they incentivized them monetarily. They would tell the Jewish tax collector, hey, as long as we get ours, you can have yours. So if the tax collector went to the Jewish fig farmer and went to the fig farmer and the fig farmer owed $100 for the taxes, the, tax, the Jewish tax collector would go to his fellow Jew and say, you owe $200. So the tax collector would give $100 to the Romans and put $100 in his pocket. So you can imagine how the Jews felt about their rich tax collecting trader friends. They hated them. They despised them. They thought they were the scum of the earth. In fact, the Jews wouldn't even let their fellow Jewish tax collectors into the synagogue, which was their Jewish church building. The Jews wouldn't even let tax collectors have their day in court. The Jews wouldn't let tax collectors serve as credible witnesses in their court system. So if the Pharisees were the respected insiders, then the tax collectors were the despised outsiders. So in order for us to view Jesus' parable here correctly, you've got to view the Pharisees positively and the tax collectors negatively. And you know what they're doing in this passage, the, the tax collector and the Pharisee, they're praying. And Jesus compares and contrasts their way of praying. He and the, way, the things that they have in common are very few. They both go to the temple. 
They both stand up as they pray, and they both pray out loud. After that, there are no resemblances of any kind of similarity. But let's look at the Pharisees' prayer first, verses 10 to 12. And to sum it up, here's what he's saying. He's really saying, haven't I been such an upstanding, great citizen among you? First, he talks about that he's not an extortioner, so he doesn't steal from people. That he, he, then he goes on to say that he uses his sexuality in a biblical manner. He says he promotes justice at every turn. So really saying, I, I've done this horizontal relationship thing really well. I've related with other people the way that God wants me to. But his boast goes on. His boast goes on in verse 12 to talk about his relationship with God. So he's talking about his relationship with others, and he talks about his relationship with God. And he says, I fast and I give my money away. And the way that the, the, the Jews understood this word tithe, the, the word tithe you see in verse 12, it was really as an act of worship. So he's really saying, I practice the spiritual discipline is really great. For us, I'd be like, man, I pray and I read my Bible. I wake up at 4 a.m. and I do it till 7.30 and I pray for you, pastor. That's what he's saying. So he takes his faith seriously. And isn't that what we're trying to get after here at church? People take their faith seriously. But he goes further. At the beginning of his prayer, what does he do? Do you see it there in verse 10? What does he do? He thanks God at the beginning of his prayer. So what's wrong with taking your faith seriously? What's wrong with thanking God? Well, you get a few clues in his prayer, don't you? Well, that word pray might as well say pray to himself in verse 10. So in many ways, his prayer is more like self-talk than it is God talk. His prayer really ends up being this self-congratulations. And the way that he feels so good about himself is that he evaluates himself to other people. He evaluates himself to this kind of generic group of other men, and he evaluates himself to the tax collector, the one who's standing right next to him. So you see he's got this kind of, not only is he self-congratulatory in his prayer, he's also got this air of superiority, this pride. This guy really is, he's stoned on himself. He gets a high off thinking about who he's become. He's proud of himself. He's the president of his own fan club. His heart says all day long, every day, I love me some me. This guy is self-absorbed to the core, even though he takes his faith seriously and even though he thanks God. Now look at the tax collector. He's like the complete opposite. And Jesus talks more about the tax collector's posture than he does what he says. Do you see his posture? There's really three things of note. It says that he stood far off, meaning he couldn't even get himself to approach the temple because it's the dwelling place of the Lord. Then it says he can't even lift up his eyes, and he can't lift up his eyes towards the heavens because of his own sense of unworthiness. And then he beats his chest because he hates who he has become. And then he goes on and he prays, and he prays a much shorter prayer than the Pharisee. All he says is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You could also translate it as saying, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Unlike the tax collector, or unlike the Pharisee, he doesn't compare himself to anyone. Unlike 
the Pharisee, he has a very clear picture of the holiness of God. He knows he's guilty as charged. He knows he's got no legs to stand on. In fact, he doesn't even go about listing out his sin as some list of behaviors. Rather, he talks about his sin as a matter of identity. Being a sinner for him was, he he viewed as an identity in the same way that he viewed being Jewish or being male or being a human being. But even in the midst of himself identifying as a sinner, acknowledging the holiness of God, he's able to say, Lord, have mercy. He knows that God's holiness doesn't cancel out his mercy. And the tax collector holds up these two characteristics of God, his holiness and his mercy, and he holds them in tension. See, if all he had going for him was mercy, he just waltz up into prayer real casually and say, God, you are a merciful God without any of the postures in place. Or he'd have all the postures in place and he wouldn't be able to say anything in prayer because he wouldn't know of God's mercy. So you get done reading the story. You get to the end of verse 13. And you're wondering, how is this bomb in the crevice of my soul going to go off? Well, you see who he's talking to in verse 9. In verse 9, he's saying, he's telling this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. So you see the bomb that's trying to go off. He's trying to expose their pride and expose their lack of love. He knows Jesus is adept enough at this teaching thing to know that if he just points his finger at them and he says, you're prideful, that they're either going to look back at him in blank stares or they're going to get real defensive and tell him why they aren't prideful or they're going to say, yeah, I'm prideful, but in a real generic way or they're going to punch him in the face. Instead, Jesus plants the bomb. And when it goes off, it hurts. It's disruptive. And last week and last weekend when I was gone from among you, Jesus planted a bomb in me. He caught me red-handed. He caught me red-handed trusting in myself and looking at others with contempt. I wasn't here last week. Um, I wasn't on vacation, though I've done some of that. Um, I was in Washington, D.C. Bryce Anderson, one of uh, one of our elders, he and I went to D.C. and we didn't go just to have a good time. We went um, for this cohort that we're part of. We're part of uh, the initial launching of a ministry called the um, the Institute for Cross Cultural Mission. Okay, and every July and every January, uh, we'll go up for the next three years uh, to learn about this whole thing called called Cross Cultural Ministry, and. Um, it's led by a good friend of mine. His name's Erwin Entz. Uh, Erwin Entz is an African-American pastor uh, who, in our denomination. And um, I called him about two years ago, and I was like, man, here's my neighborhood. Here's what my neighborhood looks like, and here's what my church looks like. I need a ton of help. And uh, Erwin was pretty snidely. He's kind of playing his cards just right, you know. And uh, he goes, well, you know, I think there's something on the horizon I'm going to be a part of. I'll keep you in the loop. And I'm like, I hear what you're saying. 
you're being real vague with me about what's going to happen with your job, but keep, I, I do want to keep in touch. So a few months later, he emails me. He says, I've stepped down from my position as pastor of his church in Maryland, um, and I'm going to be a part of this church uh, in D.C. called Grace D.C. That's what the church is called, Grace D.C. And a, a ministry of Grace D.C. is going to be this institute for cross-cultural mission. And he said, I'd love for you and your church to be a part of this beta group. And I was like, man, I, I didn't, don't need any more convincing. If you're a part of it, I'm so desperate. I'll, I'll, I'll take it on, even if it's this beta group. And so I start reading the books that are assigned for this first initial gathering that we had last weekend. I start writing some thoughts down, some reviews, some reflections. And the day before I left, after I'd been reading this stuff for the last couple of weeks, I turned to Jenna at dinner one night and I was like, gosh, I'm just I'm not sure I want to do this. I mean, I got a hundred other things I could be doing. I'm already seeing that being the part of the beta group, there's reason that we got a discount as the beta group because it's a little wonky in their communication to us so far. But I'm going to go to this weekend. You know, got, Bryce and I got our plane tickets. We're going to go up there, and uh, I'm going to drop out after the first weekend. And, um, and over the next couple days, uh, between the time... I said that until we started the class. I started saying in my own head, my own heart, I was like, you know, I can figure this stuff out. I mean, I, I, we, we've died, uh, we've died uh, eye deep here into our neighborhood. I can learn, I've only been here three, you know, for almost four years. I'll learn a lot more the next four years. Uh, I don't want to pay any money to this institute. Uh, and, and it doesn't, I mean, I've, I've got some good cross-cultural experience. You know, I've got, I've got an African-American mentor. I coached some African-American guys when I was in college. I mean, I like rap music. I mean, what else <laughs> do I need? And you know what that sounds like, don't you? The Pharisee. Red-handed. So we get up there, and Thursday, the, the class goes pretty good. I changed my tune a little bit on thir- after Thursday. And then Friday, we go in. We're still talking about all this stuff, culture, race, ethnicity, dominance, subdominance. And we get to 5.30 when the class is over, and Bryce and I are walking back to our hotel. And I'm like, man, if I've got to talk about any of this stuff anymore, I'm done. I just want to talk about something practical. So we go through the rest of our night, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty sour the rest of the night. And Saturday morning, I wake up, and uh, I was a little behind on one of the things we were supposed to read, and it's this book called White Awake. White Awake, white awake is written by this white pastor who tells his story of doing multicultural ministry. He writes these seven stages of gaining sight to see the need for racial reconciliation. And the chapter I read that morning is disorientation. One of the seven stages, disorientation. And he begins to talk about disorientation in light of what happens in Mark 8. Mark 8, you'll see a little story of Jesus healing a man born blind. And when he heals this blind man, he puts some mud on his eyes and he lifts his hand off. And he says, he asks the blind guy, he said, can you see? He said, I can, but the men look like trees walking around. So in other words, his sight's kind of blurry. And what the writer says is that that's the way things begin to be. When you begin to see the need for this kind of reconciliation to happen in your church and in your neighborhood and in the world, that you have your eyes open, but things are awful blurry. And it's exhausting when you have blurry vision. If I don't put my glasses, I I can tell if I don't put my glasses on real quick after I get out of bed, I can get cranky. 
But being blurry is better than blind, but when things are blurry, you still can't really see. And as he talks about this, he starts talking about the fact that the reason you're, you're disoriented is oftentimes because of your lack of exposure. And he says, once you list out all your friends, list out your 10 best friends, your, your, your 10 mentors, your, uh, your, the 10 preachers you listen to the most, and the 10 authors you like to read the most. So I did it. Guess what? Almost all white. Got me thinking, Chris Rock said, he said, all my black friends have a bunch of white friends, and all my white friends have one black friend. He tells it like it's a joke, but it's really not. The data backs it up. I also noticed this disorientation, not really knowing what's going on, blurry, that I also realized I was really tired, this low stamina, this wanting to quit in that conversation with Jenna, this wanting to not talk about it anymore with Bryce. It was all because I'm trying to get out of talking about these issues. I was really talking myself into the fact that I wasn't that bad. I began to realize that my desire for diversity without fighting for racial injustice was naive at best and unloving at worst. So I get done reading this chapter on disorientation. I hang my head. I felt a shame and I prayed a prayer to the effect of, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. With my head hung, I'm, I'm feeling tired, disgruntled, angry. That's what I, the way I was feeling. And now things have really shifted for me. And I started to grieve my sin. In fact, that grieving that started last Saturday really hasn't let up. Nothing's fixed it, and I don't know if there are any solutions. The truth is, I really think that grieving is exactly where God wants me to be. Maybe the reason I'm going through this cohort isn't so much that I can come back here and teach anything. Maybe the reason I'm a part of this cohort is for me to become a different kind of person. The kind of person who grieves over his own contribution to racial injustice and to mourn the racial injustice I see in our neighborhood and in our world. So Jesus finishes here in verse... 14, and he tells us what this means. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So I think when my head was hung in the hotel lobby that Saturday morning, I think Jesus was saying, that's exactly what I'm looking for. I was trying to get you to a place where you cried out for mercy instead of listing off your racial righteousness. Jesus got me humble that morning, and he's going to need to do it again. But as he humbled me, he took my hand, and I began to remember some of the promises from the scriptures. Where he says, I remember your sin no more. I've cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. I do not retain my anger by delight and steadfast love. I've pardoned your iniquity and I've passed over your transgressions. They were sweet words to my soul that morning. 
I need to hear this as I grieve. But brothers and sisters, by God's grace and only God's grace am I willing to go to these places personally. There are times I've wanted to give up on all this stuff, but I just can't do it. I'd really love for you to come with me. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be really good for us. Because it's way, way better to pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, than to be a person who trusts in yourself and who looks at others with contempt. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy toward us. Thank you for coming to us in those places and uh, holding our hand and giving us gospel promises. And uh, Lord, I pray we would uh, pick up our cross and follow you, whatever that looks like for us. In Christ's name, amen.